Today's guest should need no introduction. Keith Morris is simply one of the most iconic punk rock singers of all time. A founding member of both Black Flag and the Circle Jerks, and now the lead singer in Off, no one personifies punk rock like Keith Morris. Let's start the conversation. We are rolling, and uh, another edition of the Chris Kirkwood podcast. I kind of kick it off, and then, what, featuring Chris Kirkwood and Bill Cody, I'm the producer, and we have the amazing and wonderful Keith Morris here. And I'm the director. You're the director, daddy Keith is, Keith, Keith is the director. You know, I, I, I think that that is um, pretty incredible that you've actually done a little bit of homework. Is, uh, is, are those your notes? These are notes. These that turn notes. into questions, that turn this all into a... Well, we, we like to consider this a conversation. That's right. There you go. That was and the word that I was going to say, but you ripped me off. Yeah. Bill, come on now. It happens. We artists, we're, we're, the, yeah. we're the bottom rung. If you're going to, I guess, if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from the best. There but you I, go. I don't, I, 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 I can't go there. I, I don't <laughs> oh, include yes, myself in oh, the Oh, yes, best. you can. I'm, my ego doesn't allow that. Ah. Well, I was going to say real quickly, I mean, uh, Keith is somebody who uh, helped start a little band called Black Flag that uh, was considered uh, revolutionary in some ways at the time. I think uh, icon, uh, seminal. And we didn't know what we were doing. I would say seminal. And all the way up to now, I mean, you have a band called Off that just played Coachella and got some of the best reviews. Speaking of seminal, my... Great grandmother's mother was married to one of the chiefs of the Seminole tribe. Awesome. Down in Florida. Yeah. So not only am I uh, part Jew, but I'm also part American Indian. You're, you're the Seminole Seminole. So then let's point out then that, uh, uh, that Keith then, after having started Black Flag, went on to start another band that some of you might have heard of called the Circle Jerks. So and- it's... We've actually played shows together. Yes, we have. We played up on Broadway up in San Francisco. Yes, we did. And that was pretty amazing. Absolutely. Well, you guys are pretty fucking amazing. And and I think, you know, the one of the building blocks of what became hardcore punk rock. Absolutely. And completely. I don't know. You guys like... Don't blame me. No, no, I'm not blaming you. I think it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not my fault. So let me ask you this, Keith. We'll, we'll start it off... This is yet and again another edition of the Chris Kirkwood podcast with my producer Bill Cody and uh, Craig in the studio, taking care of all the uh, recording stuff, and our our uh, uh, annotator. What's it called? Somebody that t- oh photographer. Amy's here with us as well, taking pictures, and we have Keith Morris in the studio. And have you ever explained to anybody the studio that we're in? That's right. I don't think we have. I mean, this is a, we're at Winslow Court Studios. But- at the end of every episode, we have a, a thing that mentions Winslow Court Studios, and Craig, uh, our wonderful uh, owner slash uh, engineer, uh, pretty, well, he's the engineer on these shows. Um, but tell us a little bit about where we're at. Because this uh, originally was the RCA Studios. Wow. And it would be the equivalent to um, what they did in the room that we're sitting in right now right. was sound effects. Right. Um, the, 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 the one and only time that I've been here, they lifted the floor 
and there was gravel and sand. And I, I believe a third one was just like a, like a little cement path that you would walk on to make the sounds of um, a guy with dress shoes walking down the sidewalk right. or, you know, the sand would be up for, say, a cowboy movie, uh, a horse the uh, Foley guys trotting through the sand or the gravel, the horse trotting across the gravel or, you know, somebody in cowboy boots walking across sand. Um, the Circle Jerks, this is a little bit of history, Okay, recorded in another studio similar to this, our first album, down in Culver City on um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's lot. They had a little uh, sound, sound stage, sound room with a piano. One of the times we went in, um, um, the Big Lebowski was sitting there playing piano. Right. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. And that was I found that very interesting. Just a voiceover studio. Right. And. You know, that, that record was recorded on a bag of pot, speaking of uh, our love of marijuana and some of the natural things. The producer, I forget his name, uh, paid for our studio time with a big paper bag like Albertsons or Lucky or whatever supermarket it was, <laughs> filled with some, like, bunk weed. Some, <laughs> like, okay, get, go, go smoke this and get a headache. But the, the, the way that that album was recorded was we had to sit around every day waiting for the phone call. We, we've got two hours starting at 7 o'clock. Can you be here at 7 o'clock? And th this went on for about three weeks where we, we have 45 minutes starting at 9.30. Right. And we just toss everything in the back of Greg's truck and, and race up to Culver City. This studio that we're sitting in is the the um, same type of situation. This was associated with all of the major movie studios where where we we have Paramount, um, about a block and a half away from the first place that I saw you guys played, and that would be the Meat Puppets. And I want to say it was with 45 Grave. You said earlier that it was like a little art gallery. It's now a bar. Right. And I've seen a couple of really great shows there. But your show, um, it was like, I'm I'm a big fan of both ACDC and ZZ Top. And you guys took all of that and put it in your pot and dropped some acid. And you were sun-baked, fried, whatever it was. It was just, it was amazing. I was, like, immediately sold. It wow. was, it was, it was a lot of fun, and it was crazy, and it was the, you have, a, you, you, you have, have, have had a, uh, a bit of a, a weird, aggressive, punk-like attack to these songs as Far out and wacky as they were. Can you hear the fly? There is a fly. <laughs> <one>. <laughs>
I hope so. It, it, it this fly suits the situation well, considering that it's Keith and I in here. Now, is there any any music that would be played because well, this opens up the um, well, we were, the we doors were, we were, for wires? I am the fly. I am the fly. Oh, did, the, the fly that. wanted to go swimming in my <laughs> cup of water. Uh, I, I, we will put in some music. I was going to ask you, uh, can we put some of your music in? Of course. Okay. Uh, and I'm not even going to ask the other guys. Sweet. All right. So you grew up in Hermosa, right? I uh, spent about 18 years in Hermosa Beach. Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, the South Bay, the, the three beaches there. Because that's a, like completely different. I grew up out in Phoenix, you know, and so it's a beach environment, you know, as opposed to like the desert environment. Well, we were fortunate. Uh, part of our uh, makeup was the fact that we were surrounded by uh, surfers and skaters and all of these guys that had this gung ho, go for it. Um, we're not standing around watching the waves. We're gonna go out and we're gonna get in the waves. Right. You know, we're gonna be. We we got to be on the move. We we got to be there. We 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 got to have some action, sandwiched in be between all of our other so, fast-paced things going on. So prior to prior to you know starting a band, did you get in, you got into punk rock? Um, I uh, consider myself a fan of music on on all different Good levels. Level. So I listen to a lot of different forms of music right and uh, a lot of the labels kind of put me off but it's just an easy label to say punk rock or right. hardcore yeah and i do that definitely just yeah punk well rock. we're all guilty of that yeah. yeah it's like the categorization it's you know the the rock critic needs to uh come up and s s swoop out a word out of the middle of the air to uh, describe whatever he's trying to describe rather than to get into some long, lengthy dis de description of, you know, what he's trying to say or what have you. And I uh, love glam rock. That's a description of all those guys walking around with um, funny hairstyles <laughs> and platform boots. And that encompassed a lot of truly amazing bands yeah um i've always been a fan of just rock and roll i was a fan of the british invasion uh, and those are still some of my favorite bands the beatles and the rolling stones the who the kinks it, you know all of those bands had their runs of like ray davies and all of the genius records and songs that he was responsible for he had a good long run I mean, granted, towards the end, the same with Pete Townsend. Up to a certain point, you kind of like, uh, I don't need to be working as hard, and oh, I don't have as many as, uh, ideas as I used to have. And, you know, so the creativity starts to kind of tumble down a little bit and gets turned down a few notches. But that's okay, because, you know, these are all people that are responsible for some of the most genius music even if you're listening to classical music or you're listening to jazz or what have you. You know, a, a great artist basically transcends 
all of the descriptions and all of the crap and crud that gets tossed their way. I always thought it was interesting that one of the Circle Jerk's most famous covers, and there's probably a lot of kids who think that it's a Circle Jerk song, that you covered Garland Jeffries. With... And we weren't the first to do that because there were two other versions oh, wow. between Garland Jeffries and the Circle Jerks. And one of them, that, that happened, Wild in the Streets happened to be our hit on K-Rock, which probably helped propel us to uh, out of the out of the basement and out of SIR and out of the garage into Blackies and Rogies and places like that. There was uh, another version that had been being played on K-Rock, which was uh, uh, an English session guitar player. His name was Chris Spedding. Oh, Chris Spedding did it? And Chris Spedding is, um, when it comes to English... Uh, session guitar players besides Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck Chris Spedding could be heaved up into that category he had a version and then um, right before him and I forget I think um, I heard the British Lions version on one of the more mainstream uh KMET or KLOS or KNAC or one of those stations. And the British Lions just happened to be like uh, three of the remaining guys from uh, Mott the Hoople who turned into Mott, who then turned into the British Lions. Minus Ian Hunter and... Minus Ian Hunter, minus Mick Ralphs, who at that time was doing Bad Company. Mm-hmm. And he was probably making hits and making more money and playing bigger places with Bad Company than he did with Mott the Hoople, even though Mott the Hoople are as uh, inspiring. And um, they, they, they made a pretty big dent on like guys playing guitar and playing rock and roll. So you came from being a fan. You like music. You I know? love music. Right, me too. You know what I mean? And, and and definitely at first it was just I didn't like plan on being a you know musician or whatever, you know. But I I picked up a instruments you know along the way and did start playing, you know. But it wasn't like I, I never really thought of myself. You know, I'm kind of fucking a geek, you know, whatever. You know, I just kind of like a little too withdrawn. It just didn't seem like, you know, like something that could be done, especially like through the 70s, you know, when, when stuff was so, uh, like, uh, forward, you know, you see these guys that are actually able to be so, like, so entertainery, you know what I mean? They're, they're like, you know, entertainment-wise. And, and, and in, in a way, it was definitely, like, punk rock, you know, happening that made it, like, made it okay for me to get in a band or whatever, you know? to like actually play music live and stuff just because it just seemed like it wasn't quite as uh i mean it was just you could just you know do it you know and it was on a smaller scale and that well, it opened doors for that that kid that was sitting at home in his, in his bedroom trying to sort things out and figure things out no, totally it's like know? if that guy can do it if if that guy who's a nerd and a geek right can do it i'm a nerd and a geek i can do it too <laughs> right 
You know, and that's Black Flag. You look at it. You look at Greg Ginn. He's he's a nerd. He's a perfect description of a nerd. <laughs> so how'd you guys? How'd you meet Greg? How'd, how'd that come about? How'd Black, um, how'd Black Flag start? We all went to the same high school. Okay. And um, Raymond and Erica, who are younger siblings, were uh, like a year, a year or two younger than me. Mm-hmm. And Greg was a year older than me. Um, we went to the same high school. We we all went to the same junior high school, but we we didn't know each other. It was just hey, you know, maybe in in passing, right. maybe in the quad, you know, maybe standing in line at, in the cafeteria at lunchtime. Never we ne- never really spoke. What happened was. I had a friend that owned a record store, uh-huh. and I would go into the record store, and I, I would uh, sometimes be the guy that was handed the keys to the cash register. I knew the stock. I knew where everything was. And Michael, my friend Michael, who uh, is no longer with us, RIP, um, was dating Greg's sister, Erica. Okay. And Erica decided on on occasion to bring Greg along with her. Um, maybe it was her way of saying, Greg, there's more music going on in the world than what you're listening to. And I, I remember Erica buying Greg I, I, I'm at a loss for words right now, but a, uh, like a, a gift card that said, you know, uh, you can you can purchase a couple of cassettes with this, okay. a gift card, right. gift certificate. And at the very bottom of the gift certificate, it said, no grateful dad. <laughs> <laughs> because Greg at the time was a deadhead. Right. Um. What would happen is Michael and Erica would split to go share a sandwich or smoke a couple of cigarettes or hold hands down on one of the benches down on the Hermosa Beach Pier or walk along the strand, take off their shoes, walk across the sand, whatever young lovers Walking do. Walking in the sand. Yeah, you know, like go be free, go have fun, right. go fall in love. Thus, I would be in charge of the record store and whatever was going to be played on the stereo. And um, at that time in the store, the the playlist would have consisted of Bruce Springsteen's first three albums. Anything by Joni Mitchell, anything by Linda Ronstadt, anything by uh, Hart, I believe, had just put out maybe their second album. And... There, there were, there was some loud guitars on that. There was, it was kind of rocking. I mean, it was certainly was uh, much faster paced and harder than you know all the other stuff that was basically being played in the record store. But I would skip all of that, and I'd go. I, I'd had a little stash hidden behind the counter, and I'd. I, I would put in like Mott the Hoople or I would put in um, Aerosmith or Ted Nugent. I remember Michael coming back one day and I was 
playing that first Ted Nugent album. Right. The one with Stranglehold right. on it and Snakeskin Cowboys. And it's really sad what a pathetic human being that Ted Nugent turned out to be. <laughs> but I would be playing that and he would come in and he'd say, Morris, no, no, no more stuff like this. Which I was like, okay, you're the boss, you know, now what are we going to listen to? Uh, was, it, was it Rosarita Beach or Rosalia Beach? That, that song off of, I guess it was Bruce Springsteen's first album oh, or whatever. Rosarita. Yeah. Rosarita, yeah. Yeah. You know. I, I, Rosalita. I, oh, hey, Rosalita. I heard enough Bruce Springsteen at that record store to blast me <laughs> Through six eternities. (laughs) And I'm not dissing him. I mean, the guy wrote some great stuff, but not my cup of tea. Anyways, because of Michael and Erica splitting and kind of leaving, I guess, leaving me to babysit Greg Ginn or just hang out and get friendly with them, that's how our friendship developed. And then we bonded over um, Michael, Greg, and I going to a Journey Thin Lizzy concert at the Santa Monica Civic. Uh. That's when Greg and I, um, I guess the light bulb went on over our heads. I could see the the Black Flag Journey connection. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But this was... Uh, take into consideration in the very beginning of Journey, the first couple of albums, they're a prog rock band. Right. They were with, always with, left over Santana, right? With a, with a little bit of yeah. psychedelia tossed in there. Yeah, both of that, Neil Sean and Greg Rowley both are on that uh, Woodstock movie. When you see Santana playing at Woodstock, it's both those dudes, you know? Yeah. And Neil Sean's like a fucking teenager, you know? And I always got that, that Journey, I mean, it's like, you know, you take a trip. A journey is a trip. A trip, whoa, far out. Uh, you know, I always thought there was something there. And Greg Rowley sang lead. And fucking, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy fucking stomp. Oh. You know, shitlessly, you know. They were fucking wonderful. And that was when the, um, the, the that was the Jailbreak album. Right. Which was their biggest, you know, they had a couple of hits off of yeah. that record. Big hits. Cowboy song. Yeah. Boys back in town. Yeah. So you guys bonded then, and, and at what point did, did it turn into like, you know, we should start a band? Was Greg playing guitar at the time? Greg was uh, playing guitar. <clears throat> he had a handful of songs, and I said, you know, we're going to need to uh, get some people on board to make this like a real band, and... I knew a guy that had a drum kit. I didn't know how good a drummer he was. He played on that first EP, and he did not come from the 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 part of the world where we were trying to go to. Right. And did an amazing job. Um, maybe it was to impress all of his friends. Maybe it was to find out where the party was on Friday night. Uh, he didn't last long. Um, we went through three bass players, 
before Chuck Dukowski became a part of the... Where'd Chuck come from? Chuck was uh, in a band called Worm. Oh, right. They were this just stomping, stoner, heavy, like, oh my God, my brain is turning into mush. They had a uh, song with a lyric, picture yourself in a glass bottom boat, and the the riff came in. But we loved that. You know, it was like there was, we were, we were kind of stuck in a musical, uh, it, the, the 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 situation was bleak for local music. It was everybody was doing top forty. Occasionally, one of the top forty bands would step up with a couple of originals, and it was like, okay, that that that's kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. Uh, uh, I, I I think one of the solidifying and most inspiring things that happened was a band from Detroit came out called the Dogs, a three-piece band with a guy named Lauren playing guitar, and they were like, um, they they were highly influenced by not only the Stooges, um, early Bob Seger. But the MC5, they were from Detroit. I mean, right. it was in the water, or, right. you know, it was passed on by their parents or, you know, the, the, the gene pool got mixed up at the orgy or what have you. And <laughs> these guys came out and they rocked and they, they put on a great show and it was like everything we wanted to hear. They had a bit of who going on. Um and then we saw a band called The Last who had absolutely nothing to do with punk rock. They were a pop band, but they had a they had a, a an attack, they had an edge that was like, wow, you know, we've not seen anything like this. We we had our handful of uh pop bands up on the Sunset Strip. This was before hair metal up on the Sunset Strip. Anyways, we we found out that they were local like guys that lived in Hermosa Beach and it was like wow now we have um some like-minded fellow music lovers and um <clears throat> we like I said went through three bass players Raymond Pettibone being one of them Spot who uh just released a a book of photos that he'd taken on the strand of girls skating, guys skateboarding, some band photos. Um, sp- spot played bass for a few minutes. And then we had a guy named Kansas. We, we didn't, I don't even remember his name. We just called him Kansas because uh, he and his brother probably jumped a rail car and hoboed it out to the West Coast. Um and he played, but we, with, with all of these guys, we never played live. Right. We um, were just trying to uh, learn the ropes. We were trying to uh, get our legs underneath us. Right. We were learning Greg's songs and, and as we were going and it was a very slow process I was going to play drums 
um, the the day that I was told that no, you're not going to play drums. You're going to be the vocalist. We were in the SST manufacturing office listening to the K-Rock on the radio and all of a sudden here comes Search and Destroy. Yeah. Which is, in my opinion, um, a, a flawless rock tune. Um Almost untouchable. Sure. Totally happening tune. And me being in the mental state that I'm in, having consumed probably three or four quarts of whatever the cheapest chilled urine was over at the (laughs) liquor store, I started jumping around. And in, in this process what happens is I end up jumping on a desk while the guy is soldering. Um, and what was SST at the time? SST was ham radio attenuators. And it, what the attenuator did was it helped dial in the, the frequencies. Uh, Greg worked there? Greg owned it. Oh, Greg owned it. Yeah, that's what SST originally was. It was ham radio. What it did was it souped up their the ability to um, reach other ham radio. Yeah. Yeah. And I jumped up on this desk, scared the guy who was soldering the attenuators. He looked back and I somehow managed to do some kind of triple flip off the, (laughs) the desk. And of course landed flat on my face on the hard wooden floor covered in all of this dirt. We never swept the floors, maybe once a month, if that. But I managed to just, like, leap up off the floor and jumped up onto the sofa that was sitting in the middle of the room. And it ended up doing some other, like, trying to do some Olympic swan dive off of a high dive or what have you. And once again, landed on my face and then jumped back up and started dancing around and screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs. I'm the world's forgotten boy, the one who searches and destroys. So there you go. The birth of a band. The birth of a band. So now we have a guitar player and we have uh, a a vocalist. and Who's willing to chuck himself around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fucking interesting. But we weren't a real band until Chuck Dukowski joined the band. When Chuck Dukowski joined the band, that's when the work ethic kicked in. That's that's when the Greg started writing more songs, and uh, we we played parties. That was, that was just about all we could do. I mean, we played an occasional club gig. Uh, we played at Pollywog Park. That was outstanding in that Greg Ginn had managed to swindle the head of Manhattan Beach Parks and Recreation into thinking that we were um, a jazz band that incorporates some Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty close. It's, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I remember, I've heard about that gig. Yeah, I, gig I hear all of those influences. Yeah. That, that was pretty much um, the gig that uh, made our mark in the South Bay. Right. There were a lot of people that were disturbed that how could these terrorists be allowed to run loose in our communities? Um, one of one of the witnesses was um, a very young Jay Bentley, who is now the bass player in Bad Religion. Right. We had Jeffrey Lee Pierce from the Gun Club. He happened to be on a Sunday afternoon date with Diane Chai, who was the bass player in the Alley Cats, right. who were another South Bay band. They were Lamita. They actually played Black Flag's first real show at the Moose Lodge down in Redondo Beach down on Pacific Coast Highway. And that was a good one in that um, you have to take into consideration that these, at, at this time in, in, in our musical history uh, when bands played, if the PA was anything bigger than a home stereo, you were going to, like, rock the fucking world. But you would be doing it without monitors. You know, and I, lately I've been going through a thing with the guitar player in off about, you know what? I can't be affected by what the monitors sound like because I come from a place where there were no monitors. What is a monitor? Hopefully, um, one of the the tricks that I would pull in Black Flag, and this is a pretty vulgar and nasty, ugly trick. On one of uh, one of the guys that I was most close with in the band, Robo. Being the vocalist, you stand at the front of the stage, and if, if your bass is loud enough, you can feel it. Your guitar, you should be able to hear it because it's going to cut through everything because of its frequency. The drums... Standing in front of the drums, I should be able to feel that kick drum kicking me in the back of my legs. I should be able to hear the whack of the snare like he's hitting me in the back of the head. Um, Robo would occasionally uh, bring the... Uh, enthusiasm, the playing enthusiasm, down a couple of notches, and in that instance, I would turn around and I would hock a loogie on him, which is, that's not a good thing to do. You don't do that to your friends, but it would piss him off, and when he got pissed off, all of a sudden, each one of those drum skins had my face plastered on it. Where'd Robo come from? Robo came from Colombia. I know he's Colombian, but like, how did Robio, Ro, Ro, Robo uh, served in the Colombian army? Right, I remember and that. somehow managed to get some kind of a student exchange pass to be able to go to UCLA. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't think he went to UCLA, but that was his in, in into the North America, right. and we had. Um, pretty much come to the end of our um, time with Brian Migdahl, who was the first drummer. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian's 
friends, one of his friends, one of the guys that actually played in Black Flag, Kansas, and his older brother took it upon themselves to uh, uproot like a 40-foot marijuana tree in a guy's backyard um, in the same neighborhood as Greg Ginn, on the same block as Greg Ginn, a couple of houses away from Greg Ginn. And when they uprooted this marijuana tree, they dragged it through the guy's driveway, out onto the sidewalk, down the sidewalk, into Greg's driveway, into his backyard, leaving a a trail of dirt that um, a four-year-old could follow. (laughs) And um, Greg Ginn wasn't too happy with the confrontation that he was thrust into because these guys just took it upon themselves to rip this guy off. And that was the end of Kansas. Not only Kansas, but uh, Brian Migdahl. As well. In the band, yeah. And so then you just met Robo? Um, we put an ad in the Penny Saver. Oh, really? And that's how you came around? And that's how we found Robo. Robo pulled up in his little uh, white Ford Cortina. And he had uh, customized the interior of the Cortina by removing the passenger seat like Ted Bundy. in the front so he could place his drums. Uh-huh. What, 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 uh, do you remember what the ad read? Drummer Needed. Drummer, Drummer Needed. needed um, Journey and Thin Lizzy influenced Fleetwood Mac. Um, and Fleetwood Mac and... Uh, must have experience playing jazz. I I don't remember. Hmm. But it would be, you know, it would be a typical, um, well, like kid trying to find another kid to play in his band. Right, right. We're about to get rid of a fly here. Uh, that's when you would cue in I am the fly by wire that's that's a perfect time to do it I'd just like to point out <coughs> real briefly that uh, we were being bothered we were being uh, pestered by a fly in here this whole time which is kind of appropriate but that uh, what happened Bill well Chris Kirkwood saw the fly on a cup and snatched it like what is the uh, there's a famous there's folk a tale huh? isn't, there, isn't there a folk tale the guy that gets Five flies, and they think it's five giants. It's make yeah, and, and Disney did it, yeah, yeah. The the, the, the giant killer. Mickey you get four more killer. flies, and we can. No, I'm, I'm I'm fly death. I mean, it's a, there's a technique to catching flies. You know, they always take up straight off, right? So if you creep up to them close enough, close enough, close enough, and boom, you can catch the fucker. Well, that looked you know? like something out of a spaghetti western. Oh, dude, that looked like know, something that the the man with no name would talking about my pull r- off. roots here. But uh, getting back to the soundtrack of uh, Mr. Kirkwood um, snagging the fly, you could also play uh, 20 Eyes in My Head by the Misfits. <laughs> and you could also play the Human Fly by the Cramps. Another okay, great song. One of the weirdest shows I ever saw that involved Keith here uh, was at 100 Songs in 100 Minutes with the Misfits at the Hollywood uh, Palace. They weren't. They weren't playing a hundred songs. They were playing. It was. Was it fifty songs in fifty minutes? I thought it was a hundred songs because I wasn't sure how they were going to do it. They they uh, they brought out Keith. They they went through all the Misfits catalog, 
and I was there with this good friend of mine, Eric, and uh, we were just like, because I, th- I think they said 100, 100 songs in 100 minutes, and every song was really fast. They got through the Misfits songs, and they brought you out and played, what, seven or eight Black Flag songs? I uh, only performed one song with them, which was Nervous Breakdown. Okay, and, and Des came out? Well, Des was already out because Des was the second guitar player. Okay. And Des had sang some of the Misfit songs. And then Des sang all of the the little Black Flag set. He sang all of those songs. And then they, they brought me out. I was invited to do that by Robo. I had not seen Robo in 800 years. Oh, so this is recently. Um, uh, it's probably about ten years ago. Recently, yeah. used, though. So with, with Dezo and Mar- Robo, Marky and, and Ramon. Um, Marky Ramon came out. That's how they got to the hundred. Mark, <laughs> Marky Ramon. Um, afterwards, went up to Des and said, "Do you want me to punch his face in?" And Des told Marky, "Oh no, 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 no. That's Keith. He's my friend. No. What had happened was they started to play Nervous Breakdown." which is Robo's drum roll leading into all of the whatever chaos, whatever mess was going to take place when it got to that point. And Robo was playing it like a 64-year-old. And I said, stop. (laughs) I I said, stop. And that irritated Mr. Misfit. And... Marky was standing on the side of the stage, and it's like he—I guess he was thinking, "How dare you stop a song while the Misfits are playing?" And I turned around and I looked at Robo and I said, "Pick it up, dude! Come on, let's do this! Let's do this right!" And then he like launched into it the way that it was supposed to be played. Um. I love the Misfits. I love all of those guys. I even I even um, dig some of Marky Marky Mark Bell's stuff because he was in this amazing band called Dust. What was that? Sounds like somebody got run over in the in the alley. But I think oh, was it fine. out there? It's, yeah, it's out there. Okay. He was also a Voidoid. Was he? He was a voidoid. Okay. You know, love comes in spurt. And, um, Who was in the voidoid? It's a gamble when you get a face. Blank generation. Oh, Richard Hell and the voidoids, right? Yeah. Because we were just talking <clears throat> about Richard Hell. The first, time we, uh, first tour we did. That's funny. It's just a brief little interlude here. First tour the Me Puppets did going east, you know. We've been coming out here for a while, right? We live out in Phoenix. We've been coming out to L.A. for a while. We played, gone up to, you know, San Francisco and stuff. But the first tour we did going that way, east, uh, we wound up out in New York. And it's the first time any of us had ever been out to the East Coast, you know. So it's a whole different environment and pretty colorful. And uh, the show, we, we played a show. Our first New York show was uh, at uh, Folk City. And Ira Kaplan put it on, right, who went on to do Yola Tango and all that stuff. And... Uh, uh, the opening band was Hose, which is Rick Rubin's band at the time, with, with one of the dudes that went on to be in the Beasties, right? And then the, the second band was fucking Sonic Youth, and then us. And I remember that night, Iris saying, don't let Richard Hell into the gig, <laughs> you know? 
like Richard wanted to come to the show. He was outside or something, you know, and, and we, we were aware of the Voidoids, you know, Derek, our drummer, had their records and stuff, and it was, it was just that kind of thing where somebody knows somebody else or something, and it was, it was just an odd kind of a thing where it's like, why can't we let Richard Hill into the gig? And apparently he was some sort of a, somebody that Ira didn't feel like having inside, so just, just throw that in there. now in New York. Does he? Good, 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 good. I'm glad, and I hope he's well, doing well. Well, you played well. with Hose, which was Rick Rubin's take on Flipper, yeah. Oh God, the Flipper East Coast so fucking Flipper. good. Oh, I. Oh God, <laughs> this guy's fucking ground. Oh man, Ted Falcone. Oh, what a fucking guitar player. What a super freak. Totally, utterly. I like hanging man. with the super freaks. Very much so. My my first encounter with uh, Ted Falcone was at the Deaf Club up in San Francisco. Black Flag was up there, and we uh, um, had the night off for whatever reason, and. Ted Falcone is making a slingshot out of rubber bands. Right. And lying down on his back and spreading his... Maybe it was... I was the one that did that. I said, Ted, you're doing this wrong. <clears throat> I just walked up to him. I didn't even introduce myself. It was just... we were. It was just a scene on the sidewalk outside the Deaf Club. And I laid down on my back. I took the rubber bands. He tied all of these rubber bands together. And I placed them on my feet and spread my legs. And apparently what he was trying to do was he was trying to shoot these beer cans. Like this was supposed to be a slingshot or something like that. But he wasn't folding the can. You fold the can you put right. a dent in the can and i pulled it back and the first thing i did was hit the deaf club sign and he was we we became he was like my best friend up in san francisco uh yeah we played with them like at the mabuhai one night and uh i don't know one of my favorite fucking punk rock bands you know just something else something else well the the, the great thing about them was that they were the opposite of everything that everybody else was doing yeah Definitely. And his guitar playing, was that guy, was he a Vietnam vet? That's what I always heard. That's a possibility. You know, there's something about he his guitar playing. He looks like it. You know, he seemed a little older, you know, like a little bit older than, you know, me at least, you know, to, to the way he could have possibly been old enough to have done that. I don't know. I mean, that's just what I heard. And and uh, then I got to know the other guys a little bit, you know, but. So, okay, so you were in Black Flag. Then at a point you decided to split from those dudes. Well, we'd I'd pretty much worn out my welcome because... Um, I was a party meister, right? And nothing there, wrong with that. There was uh, a little bit of room for that in the band, but it, I guess, started to wear on the other guys because um, <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of responsibilities except to just learn the lyrics and learn the songs. And rehearse three or four hours a night, five or six days a week. And I'm, there was such a great scene happening up in Hollywood with um, all of the underground punk rock bands at the mask. Right. X and the controllers and the bags and the dills and the eyes and the dickies, the flesh eaters. I mean, the... the we our our roster of bands at the time it was as good, if not better, than anybody else's. 
you know, everybody gets down on their hands and knees and they wave to the London scene and the New York scene. And it was like all of the bands in the New York scene, they all got signed to major labels and not all of them were punk rock bands. Talking Heads certainly were no punk rock band. The Blondie was no punk rock band. Um, granted, they're all fantastic bands. They're great. They all have their time and place. Uh, incredible people. It was just that our thing was, uh, I think, a little bit closer knit. It was more of a festive um, party type vibe. Um, now, granted, there, there was a lot of art students and creative or overly creative people. Um, Black Flag wasn't a part of that. I mean, we we wanted to be a part of that, but we weren't a part of it. We eventually became a part of it uh, one night when we played the Nervous Breakdown EP at a party up in Hollywood. As it turned out, a lot of influential people on this Hollywood scene... Uh, including um, Don Waller, Fast Freddy, Brendan Mullen, who ran The Mask, um, Claude Kickboy Bessie, who is the main guy at Slash Magazine. They happened to be there when we put the, for some reason there was a break in the musical action, and there's the stereo, it's on 45. Let's do this. We we played the Nervous Breakdown EP, and everybody in the room took a couple of steps back and looked at us because we were... Um, we looked like we could have been members of uh, Frampton's Camel, or we were <laughs> guitar techs and drum techs for the Grateful Dead. You know, we were from the South Bay. We didn't care about black, uh, tight-fitting jeans and beetle boots and uh, Sid Vicious haircuts. Uh, We didn't care about safety pins and, you know, whatever, uh, dyeing our hair different colors. We didn't care about any of that. That didn't affect us. We just loved the music. We played the EP. Those people were... um, you you could hear this you 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 could hear and see the silence you could feel the silence in the room when we got through playing it um i think one of the first comments was we we certainly didn't expect anything like that coming from you guys when i left we were at 16 songs we were learning four more songs but the the pace that we were learning the four new songs irritated Greg and Chuck. It's like we need to learn these songs quicker. In fact, we need to be learning more new songs. So what was happening at the time was we would play. If you sneezed, coughed, uh, went out for a five-minute cigarette break or went to the men's room to take a piss, you, you would miss half our set. And there's nothing wrong with that. Remember, 
when the Jesus and Mary Chain came over for their first U.S. tour, they only played, what, 12 minutes, 15 minutes with their backs to the audience. <laughs> and the, the uh, scenario that they created was you either loved them or you hated them, just like the New York Dolls. Yeah. That was their, their advertising campaign. Uh, a band either you love or you hate. So you split from Black Flag. And uh, maybe two weeks later, three weeks later, we were already putting the Circle Jerks together. Just like that? Just like that. It was you and Greg that started that? Greg Heston? Greg Heston, yeah. Heston, I mean. And Lucky was right there at the very beginning. How'd you know Greg? Um, Greg was in a band uh, with one of the guys that I'm playing with now, Stephen McDonald. And the McDonald brothers didn't want to rehearse. They wanted to just keep it real lazy. This is before Red Cross. No, this was Red Cross. Oh, it was Red Cross. Greg well, was they in were Red the Cross. Tourists, the, the, they were the tourists before they were Red Cross. Okay. And the tourists opened for Black Flag at Pollywog Park. And those guys must have been like kids. Uh, Stephen McDonald was 11 years old. Fucking A. <laughs> God, at 11, I had a monkey. But they, they, but they were already lazy and not wanting to practice. At eleven, um, yeah, and that that rubbed and Greg, Greg was in the tourists. That r- rubbed Greg Hetz in the wrong way, right? And so they uh, one Saturday afternoon they had a, uh, a a a drum audition because Ron Reyes had quit to become the next vocalist in Black Flag. Right. We, we we were all living in the church, so it was kind of this incestuous. Um, Next brother in line fills in for older brother or what have you. And Black Flag was they were they were playing shows within two weeks of me leaving the band. <clears throat> they auditioned Lucky Lair. <clears throat> Lucky comes from big band swing jazz, Louis Bellison, um Gene Krupa, um Oh, who's the the guy that there's the famous tape where he's just fucking Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich just <laughs> ripping. He's got all just of it. Ripping he, the bus. He's got all of the guys on the bus. You motherfuckers yeah. throwing around clams. How dare you? You can't embarrass me like this. Just fucking ripping them all new holes to crap out of. Well, that that's the school that Lucky comes from. That was the reason why he was so fast and breezy, and um, that's what made him special. They, 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 they hold the audition. Um, the McDonald brothers don't like Lucky. He has absolutely nothing to do with the way that Ron Reyes played drums which was straight out of New York Dolls, street rock. So uh, after the audition, I'm sitting in a uh, hallway in the basement of the church, drinking beer, propped up against one of the walls, listening to the proceedings. Sounded good to me. It sounded interesting. It certainly sounded, uh, it, it sounded a little bit more energetic. The McDonald brothers weren't, happy they weren't excited um and 
here come Greg and Lucky. They're the first two to come out of the door. They're shaking their heads. Greg is almost in tears. And I look up at him and I'm like saying, well, hey, fellas, how'd it go? And they explained to me that it wasn't happening. And that was probably the end of Red Cross at that time. And that would explain the reason why uh, when the Circle Jerks recorded our first record and started playing, we had um, swiped riffs from Red Cross, sped them up, uh, changed a few bits and pieces here and there, added new lyrics, because we were given, Greg was given permission to do that. The, the brothers had said, Greg, we're we're breaking up and we you you have our permission to use whatever you want to use from whatever we've done and you know there was a period in time after I'd left black flag where I was the evil guy I was the guy that everybody wanted to beat up because at one point in the circle jerks were in my garage over in Inglewood and I'm looking at the guys and it's like Guys, we, 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 we've got a show coming up here in about a week and a half. And we have seven or eight songs. We're going to need to, we we got to come up with another at least four or five songs. You know, this was at a time when um, everybody was playing so fast that there would be four or five bands, six bands on the bill. So it was no big deal if a band just took their time and set up and got up there and their half hour block turned into like a 15 minute block of time. Nobody complained. Nobody cared. Everybody was having a good time. Yeah. It was just a big party. Yeah. And that was one of the big differences between Black Flag and the Circle Jerks in that the Circle Jerks wanted to be part of the party. The Circle Jerks wanted to meet all of the girls. Hopefully they were all hanging out by the keg. Uh, it would be really gentlemanly-like to beer dispense party. beers out of the kegger for the, <laughs> for the ladies. You know, be polite, be a gentleman, you know. Uh, whereas Black Flag was, they, they wanted everything to burn down. They wanted the building to crash and tumble and crumble and... You know, they wanted the police to show up, and that was just, that was part of the routine. We, and when I say we, I mean circle jerks, we wanted to be the life of the party. And you guys are good at it. We we wanted to be the party meisters. Hey, you're fucking good at it. I mean, I think that's like, the, you guys turned it, I mean, it's a good way of putting it. You know, the way you described it is definitely a good way of putting it. And I mean, flag were fucking intense, you know, and it was like so intense that it was, it's a thing unto itself. It was Black Flag. But your guys' thing turned shit into this, like, fucking, like a bubbling cauldron of fucking drool and weirdness, you know? There was a fucking riot. But the, 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 the thing with Black Flag was that there was a lot of negativity. There was a lot of ugliness. There was a lot of um, bad vibes. And I love those guys. I actually, after I left... I saw them with Ron, and I thought that, that that was really cool. 
I saw them twice with Henry. And the first time I saw them with Henry, I thought it was one of the worst things I'd ever heard. The, the second time I saw them with Henry was in a basement. Cafe de Grand, Bob Forrest presents on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> That place was Green cool. on red, the Bengals, and, yeah, and Black red, Flag. I love, yeah. And Black Flag just annihilate. It was annihilate this week. They just they whited everything out. I was in tears. I was I was pinned against one of the cement pillars. Yeah. In the basement, my feet were like nailed to the floor. Yeah, first time I saw those dudes, they came through Phoenix, and uh, it was when Dez was singing, you know. So it was Chuck, Greg, Robo, and Dez. And they, they had gotten to the point where, you know, I mean, they kind of like couldn't really even tell when the song was going to start. They kind of leaned back, and then wham, they'd fucking hit it, you know. And, then, and they, they'd stomp shitlessly, you know. So, uh, I, I mean, really, like, seriously stomp the shit out of stuff. And, I mean, it's, an, it's a good description of the way you put that, you know. And I think it's one of the ways, one of the things that, like, I don't know. I mean, the, suddenly, when you guys came along, suddenly it seemed to blow out this whole thing, the South Bay kind of a thing. And this is just my perception of it. And then there were suddenly a lot of these punkish bands that were, that were it was more like of a party, you know? It was more like a party, kind of like the adolescence or something, you know? Stuff that kind of came along after you guys had started the Circle Jerks. Am I right? Like, you know? Well, there was... Um, like that? <clears throat> um, the, the bands from Huntington Beach. Yeah who had basically the same kind of vibe as the bands from the South Bay. Right. Um, there were bands coming out of, like, Riverside and um, the Inland Empire and the Valley. Um, Bad Religion would spring up. Um, there, there were all of the, the bands that were part of OC Life uh, behind the Orange Curtain down in Anaheim and uh, Santa Ana and all of those places. Uh, you had TSOL, you TSOL. had Social Distortion, I mean, yeah. Agent Orange, and they're all like, you know, they're putting out these records, and these records, if you listen to the music, you've got to have these records in your collection. Yeah. You know, Mike Watt put it in a funny way. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think he was referring to you guys, but he definitely was talking about... Some of those other guys, like TSOL, those were some, you know, nice-looking young men. You know, they were cool guys. They had, like, tattoos. They wore those wife beaters and stuff, you know. And he, he said it was like the cool guys suddenly got into punk rock. That's how Mike kind of put it. You know. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that happened with Black Flag was that the crowds became more athletic. Definitely. You know, because being f from the beach... You have all of those guys with that attitude. Like the Tony Alva and his skate team were huge fans of all of it. You know, they were skating to ZZ Top and they were skating to Black Sabbath and they were skating to Aerosmith and, and Ted Nugent and Uriah Heep and, you know, all of, all of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, here's the next gear, you know, the next gear or the next gear after that. And it's like, well, now we've got something that we can really skate to. Yeah. <clears throat> and some of the circle jerk shows, like we played a show up in San Francisco 
and Alva and his crew came up along with us, part of our entourage, and started leaping off the stage, diving off the stage. Stage, we're we're talking about the very beginning of stage stage diving. diving. You know, it's it's basically the guy diving into a swimming pool, only instead of a swimming pool, he's diving into a, a crowd of people off the stage. You're looking at these skaters, the Alvas and Jay Adams and all of their people, getting out in the middle of the floor and doing this this dance that is a totally macho, it seems like a jock-like, get out of my way, I'm going to punch your face in. But if, if you look at what they were doing, they were basically skating on a skateboard without a skateboard. Right. And yeah, no, I remember it went from like pogoing, you know, where like people would kind of sit there and it'd be like this arty kind of thing where you, it, it had an element of abandonment. Well, there was to also it. the worm. Don't forget the worm. <laughs> the worm. You know, and, uh, and with these things where it was, it was about like losing your mind in a way and not, not you know, and feeling the music and getting into it in a way. Well, letting but it off when some it, steam. When it turned into, then it turned into, suddenly it started to see that, like, like you just said, I mean, there, there was this different element there, kind of a, you know, and it suddenly fucking like the mosh pit was born. Well, the Hollywood people really hated it. I gotta take a piss. Well, I'm gonna line up right after you. Let's pause for just a minute. You back in there? Or is he taking a whiz? We are rolling. Okay, so now we've covered Keith Morris's involvement in starting two of the most influential fucking bands of, you know, of, of our generation, I would say. Flattery will get you nowhere, so <laughs> save it. <laughs> All right. In that, in that case, just take, take, just take off the pants, then. Just take the fucking pants off. So then all these fucking years later, I mean, we don't croak, you know. You've had some health issues, you know. You're just looking pretty fucking healthy now. Well, the last time I saw you, you were, you were, I saw you up at the cafe up off of Hollywood Boulevard with, uh, I believe you were with Flea. It was one of his favorite, Flea and Anthony's uh, favorite Greek restaurants. Right. And you were with Flea. Okay. Because I know he has the utmost respect for you. Flea's a sweetheart. And loves you and your brother. Um, But you didn't want to be there. You had other things to do. You had to find the guy that was going to uh what level you off uh bring you up one of the you, other you you uh made me look like the incredible hulk <laughs> so we've each you know so we but we but here we are still and uh yes indeed definitely you know life it's interesting you know and i'm really pleased that you know we're still here and uh and and that we're still doing stuff and now you have a new band, Off. So tell us about Off. Well, Off is the um, Off was. Uh, I, what I'd like to do is take this opportunity to thank the guys in the Circle Jerks. Ah, good idea for allowing me this opportunity to thank them. And um, in in the past. Four and a half, five years, I've never 
uh, been pushed as hard as I've been pushed. I've um, been to Australia twice with the circle jerks. No, it wasn't going to happen. I've been to Japan <laughs> once. It wasn't much of a trip to Japan, but we played a couple of shows. They were both really fun. Um, I, I've actually been to Europe three times. The Circle Jerks never got to Europe? South America. The Circle Jerks went once okay. for two and a half weeks with Gang Green. And the only reason why we were able to go to Europe for two and a half weeks was because our record label had both of us on their roster. Okay. And we had both released records. And so it was like, let's kill two birds with one stone. We, we, we could never get it together. I blame it on the Warp Tour. There's a, a very vanilla, very middle of the road, very horizontal musical thing that, that, that happened when Green Day blew up. And that is everybody needed to now be uh, radio friendly. Everybody now had to, like, mind their P's and Q's. Everybody had to uh, <clears throat> form a line and get in line and get their meal ticket. And um, everybody needed to get on a major label and get on a bus and drive around America a couple of times. Uh, everybody uh, in these bands had to have the radio hit. And we were never a radio hit band. I mean, we wrote stuff that could have been played on the radio, but, you know, when you're an indie band and you're dealing with indie labels, you're not always dealing with the, the people that have the push and the people that have the machinery and the people that have the influence. And, you know, here's your bindle of Coke, and here's, um, instead of giving you a, a, a two CDs, we'll give you two boxes of 30 CDs. All of that kind of stuff. The... Um, prevailing mentality was we're the circle jerks. We can write whatever we want. Our fans will buy it because we've not put anything out in so long. And I wasn't buying it. I was, I was not down for that. And I knew what was going to happen. I knew the results and it eventually got ugly. And Dimitri, who is the guitar player in off, was going to produce the Circle Jerks record. And thankfully, he came in and started cracking a whip and said, you're, 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 these songs that you're writing, you, you've got to come, you got to come out swinging. You got to come out with a shotgun and you got to take the shotgun and you're sitting in a turret of a tank that's sitting on an aircraft carrier because we're getting ready to blow the fucking everything that gets in our way up. You got to come out with that mentality. You don't, you don't come out with a squirt gun. You don't come out with <laughs> a water wiggle and a slip and slide and a couple of frisbees like you want to go play in the park. You want to play with all the little kids. You got to come out like you're mean and you're nasty and you mean fucking business. And it just wasn't happening. And they got disgruntled. They fired him. And it was the, it was perfect timing because he and I had already written, um, what would have been probably the first seven or eight songs for the 
new Circle Jerks album that we were working on. And I one day looked at him and said, you know, we can't let these songs just fall through the cracks. These songs are really cool. And one day he was whamming and jamming on the, we got a, uh, uh, a guitar that's half plastic, half wood sitting in my living room. And it's a, a Hagstrom and it won't stay in tune. It's like the tuning is just so wiped out that it's ugly and nasty and very Gin-like, that kind of vibe. And he started strumming on it one day, and it's like, no, you got to stand up. You can't. You, you're not. You're, you can't play the guitar for what we're doing, s- sitting in a nice antique chair. You got to stand up, spread your legs. And get into some Johnny Ramone. Get into some Link Ray. Get into some Billy Zoom. The situation was, um, you don't butterfly. That's a metal trick. That's when the, the, the guy that plays in Megadeth or whatever butterflies to make it look like he's playing really fast and like playing double time or what have you. You don't do that. You got to get angry and you got to aim at the floor. It's called the downstroke. <laughs> and he started doing that, and all of a sudden he's playing something that was just perfect for that situation. So we went for our burrito, and I said, You just tapped into something that is unbelievably. In my world, magnificent. It's like you just transported me back to the janitorial supply room at the church in the back of the church that was covered in all of this shitty, ugly, nasty, stinky, um, used carpet that we'd got from the carpeteria on Hawthorne Boulevard. Um, you you gave me crabs. That, that that picture is when we were nailing all of those pieces of carpet up to soundproof the room at the back of the church. We didn't vacuum it. We didn't shampoo it. It was just some of the nastiest, cruddiest, pulled out of um, fuck hotels, um, tr- trucker. It c- could have been the carpet in the men's room at a trucker rest stop. Um, everything was falling out of this piece of carpet and because I was at 118 pounds and my waist size was 27 and I was wearing a pair of 29s there was a gap between um the 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 front of my pants and the front of my body and all of the stuff was falling out of this carpet into my pants into my pubic hairs which meant um when I uh went to remove my pants later on I discovered that I had developed crabs <laughs> um the guitar that Dimitri what he was playing on the guitar uh acted as a uh, the device in there's that movie where the guy goes back in time he builds the machine called the time machine and he goes back in time and takes him to this place uh, w- w- with the cavemen and the, the Morlocks and the 
all of all of that fun stuff. And um, I I said, you know, you've 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 struck those chords. You've struck that nerve. This is what we've got to do. And it's been all downhill since. <laughs> Boy on a downhill slide. Uh, You've been getting some of the best reviews. Uh, I mean, just even I was just F reading. for conduct. <laughs> <laughs> an F for conduct, but a, an A for uh, effort. <clears throat> no, I, I've seen nothing but good reviews of off, and uh, several several magazines noted that you were uh, one of the highlights of Coachella, even if your crowd wasn't as big as some of the other ones. Well, we were fortunate um, that we were in a tent at a certain time of the day where people wanted to just have a cool place to go and hang out. And when I say cool, I mean the temperature in the tent. I don't mean it like going to see off. I don't know how cool that is. But um, the first time we played Coachella, we played in a tent around the same time. And it was all of these girls. I mean, how could you argue with a with like 3,000 girls dressed in hot pants. No argument from me. Uh, that certainly beats all of these years of being in these hot, sweaty, steamy rooms with half-dressed guys with boots beating up on each other and, uh, you know, rubbing up against each other. There was, was certainly a... a, a, a an incredible lack of girls in hot pants. <laughs> so Coachella for us uh, is a learning experience. It's been good. It's been bad. I personally, I think it's one of the greatest things in the world. It's a rite of passage. It's uh, all, all of these uh, teenage kids going out there getting fried and uh, taking drugs and Granted, they're not paying attention to anybody with guitars. I noticed that when um, Built to Spill played, there were maybe 1,500 people, maybe 2,000. I didn't have my clicker out, so I, was, I wasn't counting heads. I just kind of had to guesstimate. The same thing for um, Jenny Lewis who played right after Built to Spill, and maybe another 500, maybe another 1,000 for Ryan Adams, who played after Jenny Lewis. And I didn't watch anybody on the main stage because I don't care about the majority of the bands on the main stage. The first time we played Coachella, I actually listened to Duran Duran, and they sounded amazing. And, and, and they're a great band. They have their place. They've, you know, they got their thing going. Um, I listened to uh, three or four songs by The Strokes. I'm not a fan. Uh, maybe they're some of the greatest guys in the world. But uh, I, I have no room for anything that they do in, in, in any of my musical journeys. Um. <clears throat> But the last couple of times we played, the first time we played was the last um, one weekend show because they realized 
that, well, if we can sell out one weekend, we can sell out two weekends. And what they were doing was the first weekend was Coachella. The second weekend was Stagecoach, which was the the cowboy country uh, folk. Granted, this year Stagecoach had Eric Burden and the Animals. That's that's pretty happening. You know, the the gap between Merle Haggard and, and Eric Burden and the Animals. But that's pretty badass those 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 are two artists that i could definitely i would go out of my way to check out um but what they did was they discovered they came to the realization that well if we can sell out one weekend of coachella let's sell out two because what was happening was coachella was selling out before they even announced any of the bands that were performing like i said it's a it's a it's a uh Rite of passage, it's a ritual for these kids. It's like, it's the same thing with Reeds and Letting over, um, I mean, Leeds and Reading festivals, those festivals over in Europe, they're all like the kids will go and there'll be a mudslide and all of the tents that they're camping in are filled with mud and slosh and goo and, you know, all the girls are... Um, trudging around in hot pants and uh, knee-high rubber boots. It's it's a beautiful thing, you know, to be young. To be young and in love. <laughs> <clears throat> but with, 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 with off, I, I've, uh, I've just, it's been nonstop action-packed. Yeah. That's awesome. That's fucking awesome, you know. I mean, I, it's, it's really heartening to me, you know, I, I like... Any of my pals from the good old days, you know what I mean? Considering that we all have been doing this for a fucking minute, <clears throat> you know, they're still alive even, and yet they're still doing stuff is a wonderful thing, you know? So congratulations on that. You guys are going to Europe, got a new album out last year. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're in Belgium on Saturday awesome. for a festival, which like um, my brain is like ready to explode. Why would you fly all the way to Europe for a festival? For a festival. Although we did fly to, we we did fly to England to play a show with Pearl Jam, but Pearl Jam said we love you guys. Um, what would it take for you to come over and play with us? We do this big outdoor amphitheater, seventy thousand people, completely sold out. Amazing food, great vibe. Those guys are like really amazing characters. Um, what did it take? <laughs> no, I'm just. No. We um, had all of our expenses paid, and I got to pay my rent for uh, probably at least four or five months. Well, bitching. So have a good time in Belgium. Fuck it. Should we play some off?
Today's show was recorded at Winslow Court Studios in Hollywood, California.